0: The International Science Radio Show.
1: We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs>
0: the good, the bad, the
1: ugly. It gets
0: pretty exciting. The myths, the truths,
1: toxicology, asteroismology. magnetism, the dark side. Genetically
0: engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion, a listening experience of bizarre science being infused into your brain. My name's Philippe Perez, and on this edition we'll be featuring stories of the ethical kind. We'll be looking at the ethics of substance abuse and detention, as well as the ethics of enhancing children genetically. But first up, let's hear some news with Victoria Bond and Ian Wolfe.
0: (laughs) Alright, so by now listeners to Diffusion may or may not be aware that I love all things CERN. CERN, that's the gigantic tunnel underneath Switzerland where they bash particles together and try to find what makes everything stick together. Fascinating. Anyway, more recently there's been some really exciting news to come out of CERN, which is that they've managed to identify and sequester anti-hydrogen atoms in a magnetic trap for more than 170 milliseconds. That means it's nearly long enough for them to be able to study what hydrogen antimatter is. Now, hydrogen antimatter atom is made from a negatively charged antiproton and a positively charged positron. It's basically the antimatter counterpart of the electron. The objective that the team at CERN has is to compare the energy levels in antihydrogen with those of hydrogen to confirm that antimatter particles experience the same electromagnetic forces as matter particles, which is a key premise in the standard physics model. So the Alpha Collaboration is the collaboration responsible for finding this antihydrogen, and it says it's the first major advance since the creation of thousands of antihydrogen atoms in 2002 by a forerunner experiment called Athena. Now the problem with that forerunner experiment is that within several milliseconds the atoms annihilated, <laughs> within several milliseconds the atoms destroyed themselves with ordinary matter in the wall of the cont- container. What happens when antihydrogen uh, encounters normal hydrogen is it just kind of um, negates itself in, in like a flash of bright light. So it's very hard to observe. So to prevent that from happening, the alpha team formed anti hydrogen atoms in a magnetic trap. So although the anti hydrogen is not electrically charged like antiprotons and positrons, it has a more subtle magnetic character that arises from the spins of its constituent particles. What the researchers did is they used an octopole magnet produced by the current flowing in eight wires to create a magnetic field that was strongest near the walls of the trap, falling to a minimum at the center, which caused the atoms to collect there and cluster. To trap just 38 atoms, which is what they managed to do this morning, the group had to run the experiment 335 times. So to be able to do measurements on this, these particles, they, the researchers estimate that they'll need up to 100 antihydrogen atoms trapped there at once. So we're still a little way from that goal, but it's the most significant amount of time that we've managed to see this antimatter. Very, very exciting
1: news. Hi, I'm Dave the Happy Singer, and you're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. And more on sticking things together. Researchers have designed bacteria that can produce a special glue to knit together cracks in concrete structures. The genetically modified microbe has been programmed to swim down fine cracks in concrete, and once it gets to the bottom, it produces a mixture of calcium carbonate and a bacterial glue. The glue combines with the filamentous bacterial cells, ultimately hardening to the same strength as the surrounding concrete, and essentially knitting the building back together. The bacterium tweaked by the researchers is called Bacillus subtilis, and is commonly found in soil. Accordingly, the research team calls its building healing agent Filler. The agent was developed with the goal in mind of prolonging the life of structures that are environmentally costly to construct. Around 5% of all man-made carbon dioxide emissions are from the production of concrete, making it a significant contributor to global warming, said joint project instructor Jennifer Hallinan, a research fellow in complex systems at the University of Newcastle in the United Kingdom. Finding a way of prolonging the lifespan of existing structures means we could reduce this environmental impact and work towards a more sustainable solution. It could be particularly useful in earthquake zones, where hundreds of buildings have to be flattened because there is currently no easy way of repairing the cracks and making them structurally sound. As part of the research, Newcastle students have not only considered the advantages of their engineered bacteria, but also the potential risks to the environment. The Bacillophylla spores start germinating only when they make contact with concrete, triggered by the very specific pH of the material and they have a built-in self-destruct gene that prevents them from proliferating away from the concrete target. Once the cells have germinated, they swarm down the fine cracks in the concrete and are able to sense when they reach the bottom because of the clumping of the bacteria, or so-called quorum sensing. This clumping activates a concrete repair process and the cells differentiate into three types, cells which produce calcium carbonate crystals, Cells which become filamentous, acting as reinforcing fibres. And thirdly, cells that produce the glue that act as a binding agent and fills the gap.
2: And so, from genetically modified bacterium to genetically modified children. Robert Sparrow gave a talk at the Singularity Summit Australia titled A Not-So-New Eugenics, The Harsh Logic of Human Enhancement. He's a senior lecturer at the Centre for Human Bioethics at Monash University. The Singularity Summit was a meeting and series of talks about the radically accelerating technological future as well as its implications for society. With more, here's Ian Wolfe
1: human enhancement technology has been foretold that will allow us to have healthier and smarter children. Old-style eugenics was one such technology, using selection to improve children by only allowing healthy parents to have children. There are two key philosophies on the subject. One is consequentialism, which is essentially concerned for human welfare. When it comes to the moral evaluation of the consequences of the use of genetic technologies, for example, Don't bother with arguments from authority or religion, just look to how they impact human welfare. The other philosophy is libertarianism, which is that people should be as free as possible to do what they like. There's an important difference between enhancing yourself and enhancing your children. It makes sense to be libertarian about self-enhancement. If you want to get a third eye or some horns growing out of your head, then why not? If you want to take pharmaceuticals and improve your thinking, it makes sense to be libertarian. But when it comes to enhancing our children, it's a different matter because there's the welfare of another human being involved. A trivial example is if I genetically engineer my child to be tall and thin because I like hat stands. It's obviously morally wrong. Libertarianism has problems when we talk about enhancing children. We need to make distinctions between two different types of enhancement. There's person affecting, where an individual's personal welfare has been changed by the enhancement, and non-personal affecting, Recombinant DNA technology applied to a human embryo would be person-affecting technology. Say you introduce a squid gene for big brains, so your child's IQ might be over 100. You know your child's brain would have been ordinary if you hadn't intervened. Or giving children education and giving them lots of breast milk are person-affecting technologies of enhancement. It's hard to imagine more powerful person-affecting technologies than education and breastfeeding at the moment. We simply don't know enough about biology yet to really be able to predict the effects of gene modification in humans, so it's a brave call to genetically modify your child for their benefit. However, another thing you can do is choose your embryo. Pre-implantation genetic diagnosis lets you choose an embryo that has healthier genes than the others. The implanted embryo is less likely to have a genetic disease than the other embryos that might have been born instead. Such a child would be enhanced. This is the future of the science fiction movie Gattaca. If you do this, your child can't thank you, and if you don't, your child can't curse you. Imagine being born the unmodified third child of the family when your two older siblings have been through Selection. You can't complain about your lack of enhancement in comparison to your brother and sister because if your parents had used Selection, a child who wasn't you would have been born instead. So you haven't been disadvantaged. The most you can say is that somebody else would have been better off in your place. You can't claim to have been harmed, so no individual has been harmed. If you do know that you could prevent a child with cancer-causing genes to be born by selecting a healthier child, why wouldn't you? And yet, you wouldn't have harmed anybody if you chose not to. So can we say people should be free to do this, but not genuinely morally obligated to do this? Imagine you could have a child with life expectancy of 200 years and an IQ of 200. If you choose to make the decision by tossing a coin, whether to leave it to nature or to select this gifted embryo, would you be doing a morally wrong thing? There are two eggs in the petri dish and you know you're going to have a child. One will have a double life expectancy and a double IQ and one will not. Do you have a strong reason to choose the better embryo? Are you doing the wrong thing if you don't? Is it true that there are no harms associated with not choosing the better child? Is there a social harm to parents who chose not to prevent their child from having genetic diseases? Should your taxes go to pay for the medical treatment of sick children that their parents could have avoided having had they chosen a healthier embryo? Tax bills will go up as a failure of other people to enhance their children. So perhaps existing people are harmed by your decision not to use embryo selection to enhance your children. So if you want to avoid genetic testing, then perhaps you need to take out extra health insurance to pay for the full cost of looking after your children. Perhaps there should be tax incentives. You can have an ordinary child if you like, but it will cost you just twice as much. So now there's market pressure for you to use this technology. In the same way, you can choose not to have a mobile phone, but almost everyone that can afford to has one. Nobody forced us, yet we all made the same choice. There are now significant disadvantages to not having a mobile phone. Public phones are disappearing, business contacts and friends get annoyed and you can simply miss out socially and financially. So a future in which people have access to this enhancement technology is also a future in which they are required to use it. Perhaps a world in which everyone is healthier and more intelligent should be embraced. One of the things about this notion of the best child is that there will only be one. There's only one best child out there. Are people morally obligated to have? the best child. The child people are obligated to have might be a clone of Schwarzenegger and Beyonce, or failing that, the person with the best genome. We should all have clone children of this one best person with the least disease genes, the best intelligence genes and so forth. Now think about the impact that skin colour has upon life prospects. Being born with dark skin in Australia is a natural advantage because you get less skin cancer. It's arguably still a social disadvantage. So, If you know that having your child naturally will expose your child to a lifetime of racial prejudice, aren't you obligated to prevent that if you can? Of course, that's contextual on your culture. In China, you have different ideals of health and beauty, but they still only have one ideal child. might be male. Robert concludes that embryo selection is problematic and it's not a technology that we can use lightly, unless we want to have children who all look remarkably the same and have remarkably the same capacities. Robert Sparrow has published a paper in the American Journal of Bioethics recently, arguing that to have a child with the longest life expectancy, you should have a girl. Sex selection is already available. If you want the best child possible, then she's a girl. It turns out that women live three to five years longer, most places around the world. If you blind people to the reasons for increases in life expectancy, it just looks like maleness is a disease condition. People get terribly upset about this. If we all had girls, then there would be negative social consequences. The only way around this is to prevent people having access to sex selection technology. We're going to say we don't want everybody coming out the same. So we're going to say you can't use this technology outside of certain limits. If you did, you might have the best child, which has been predetermined, and everyone having the best child will have negative social consequences. The moment you start to look at the social consequences, you put the state in the role of telling people that some of them will have to have sub-optimal children for the sake of diversity, which is a really hard sell. The only way to get parents to have diverse children will be to prohibit access to this technology. That parents should have the best child is a different claim to one that they should have the child that they want. Girls are better than boys because they live three to five years longer. The notion of enhancement requires that some things are better than others, so there must be choices it's very hard to make distinctions between screening out diseases and screening in human enhancement. If you get rid of all the genes that predispose you to dying of various genetic diseases, then you'll end up very long-lived. But that just looks like enhancement rather than disease prevention to some people. Will we create an underclass of poor people in third-world countries who don't have access to child enhancement technologies? We already have. The seriously wealthy already live on a different planet. If you're born in California to millionaire parents, or you're born in the Sudan to poor farmers, you might as well be living on different planets. You might as well already be different species. Of course, genes aren't destiny. You could do everything to have the most enhanced baby, and then get killed by a bus on the way home from the hospital. There are always risks. Almost all the medical technology available to us in the wealthy countries is unavailable in the third world. There's an argument that we shouldn't use this until everybody has it. It's always possible that the son or daughter of the Sudanese farmer could become a billionaire, but it's pretty unlikely. Some American philosophers warn of the danger of a species split where genetically enhanced humans feel themselves so superior that they want nothing to do with us old type of humans. These are the Nietzscheans in the Andromeda Science Fiction TV series. Only careful state regulation could prevent negative social outcomes from pre-implantation genetic diagnosis eugenics.
2: That was Ian Wolfe talking about genetically modified children and giving a summation of a talk by Robert Sparrow at the Singularity Summit Australia. Robert Sparrow has also researched the controversy of deaf parents genetically selecting for deaf embryos to force their children to choose deaf culture over the wider culture they might have chosen if they could hear. If you want to learn more about the Singularity Summit, head off to www.singest.org.au. Robert Sparrow is a Senior Lecturer at the Centre for Human Bioethics at Monash University. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. If you want to send an email, send it to diffusion at 2SER.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney via 2SER and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Click on subscribe to listen to our podcast. And now to keep on with the theme of ethics in today's show, we're going to explore the ethics of substance abuse and detention. Victoria Bond had a chat with Dr. Fisher from Nepean Hospital's Drug and Alcohol Unit and discussed the tricky points behind treating patients with substance dependencies.
3: So my name's Karen Fisher and I'm lucky enough to be employed as a doctor by the Centre for Addiction Medicine, which is out here at Nepean Hospital. We're a statewide detoxification service that has up to 16 beds, short stay, three to five days normally, with the opportunity for four of those beds under a very specific act to keep you for up to 28 days. And so what are the um, conditions in which you can be kept in this bed? For 28 days. For 28 days. For 28 days. This is a new trial um, for a Drug and Alcohol Treatment Act that's been designed by the New South Wales government to trial a much more extended model of care, recognising the fact that people that are subject to substance dependence often don't get to look after the health well enough. And arose very much from community concern that people who are accept, um, affected by drugs and alcohol often got left out between mental health services and physical health services who said, until you fix your drug use, we can't look at either of those things. So I guess the thinking is that we get on top of your substance dependence and remove it. It allows us an opportunity to look at the other things that might be underneath. So what you're saying is a current um,
0: drug and alcohol users are not really seen so much as medical patients, but as...
3: Often are not seen as medical patients because people believe that drug and alcohol use is a failure of will. Too often it's conceived of as a failure of will. Then in actual fact, if they pulled themselves together and got rid of the drug and alcohol use, all their other health concerns were fall into place. It's often the great confuser. so that if you're a very junior doctor and you're seeing someone who's affected by drug and alcohol use, you can tend to blame everything on the drug and alcohol use rather than looking for other reasons for why those particular health symptoms might exist. So you mentioned earlier that you're a doctor. What kind of doctor are you? I'm just an ordinary little medical officer out here at Napier Hospital, so my interest is addiction, and I did some post-grad training in psychiatry. Mm-hmm.
0: And generally, um, is, is there a specialty for dealing with substance? There's a specialty for
3: addiction um, medicine, which is still evolving, and it comes duly under the College of Physicians and College of Psychiatrists, so it's got a number of pathways to it. And it'll probably change again as our conception of addiction changes yeah. as well. So I think that as it becomes more um, biologically based again, because certainly in the United States they're doing a lot of work neurologically to tease out what's going on. So you might find more neurologists coming into it and it just changes you can almost trace the pattern of the way in which society has responded to um, drug and alcohol issues by the way in which different subspecialties in the medical profession have gone after it so previously it used to be looked after by psychiatric people it was found that in actual fact people were dying from the physical complications so it became very much a gastroenterologist's role to look after it now perhaps because they've done such a stellar job in terms of hepatitis and in terms of looking after alcoholic liver disease people are now saying we need neurologists to look at what's happening to our brain so that'll probably change and attract the neurologist to this particular field hopefully That's a very interesting direction. Yes, it'd be very different. Do you think that part of the reason um, it hasn't managed to pin down a
0: specific specialty is because we don't really necessarily understand what's going on?
3: Definitely, and I think that they haven't lived as long. So I also think that what we'll begin to see as people like Keith Richards hit their 70s and the baby boomers who have actually used drugs for a long period of time and probably used them quite functionally and now have different social adjustments changed, so they might be entering nursing homes or Mm -hmm. they might be losing family, their ability to actually get hold of the little cannabis that they smoke at night will change, and so our reaction to that will change. So I think that before, drug and alcohol users tended to change. Once you had children, you might stop using. Once you um, got different life tasks done, you might have changed what you were doing. Or, indeed, you used to have a much shorter lifespan than others because you died. Now with better treatments, people are living longer. So what sort of impact that will have will change as well. So probably the first wave of people now that have entered nursing home care, we get a lot of referrals around what to do around alcohol use. I would imagine over the next 10 to 20 years we'll see cannabis use, we'll see benzodiazepine use, we'll see um, people that have got an opiate problem entering in nursing homes. So that'll take drug and alcohol into the field of gerontology and get a whole load of geriatric um, focused physicians involved in the DNA complications. So it very much responds in the way we do. So as a student, my experience has been of the teaching that it's... It, it
0: reflects this this lack of understanding, perhaps. It's... Um, uh, it's being taught to us within the field of psychiatry, mm-hmm. but there's a whole lot of medical um, mm-hmm. side effects to it. Mm-hmm. So how do how do people reconcile that in the treatment of these of these we patients? We failed you. We failed you,
3: Victoria. So we're fessing up right now. Not what we've tried to do is it's actually integrated into your course early. So the idea is that you keep thinking about it all the time and rather than putting it towards any one speciality, what we try and do is say to you remember that one out of every six hospital admissions is complicated in some way by DNA use so in actual fact we're so ubiquitous we want you to think of us all the time sadly what happens is that people put down social drinker or they put down started here and forget all the other things so we're a victim of our own success and trying to make us common we've become so common that we forget that there's quite a robust science behind it and we sit uncomfortably um, by ourselves as a silo industry because we actually straddled so many different industries and so many different specialities and that makes it very hard mm. because you're having to ideally have people who've got the skills of an old-fashioned general practitioner who are awesome understanding that for most GPs it's very difficult to have the sort of longitudinal involvement with a patient that allows you to treat their drug and alcohol use in a, in a cohesive, um, effective fashion okay. and that's hard. Um, just to end on a, a bit of a tougher question, sure. um,
0: we were discussing before the, the ethics, I guess, behind treating these patients against their will. Yep, Because ultimately, to use or to not use a substance, um, people perceive that as you have a choice, mm-hmm. but yet we're taking that choice away when we change
3: it. I think globally what we found is that with this march towards neurology and with this early part of the 21st century being very much around the brain, so a lot of the messages that you're getting around neuroplasticity, things like the brain that changes itself becoming a bestseller, make us all understand that what we've begun to do is our, to our brains is very um, infinitely more complex than we imagined. That includes our drug and alcohol use. Personally I don't particularly like locking anyone up, but I'm also very aware that if you use substances long enough In a particularly vulnerable individual, in a particular set of circumstances, that person seems to exhibit what looks like brain injury. Whether or not that goes on for life, I have no concept. Whether or not that's permanent, I have no concept. How we'll best treat it, I certainly don't have the answers. But I guess what we're trying to do is actually have a moment where we at least look at it and say, look, for these people I think this is a problem and we need to come up with better treatment modalities. That's the way we make peace with the involuntary part of it. We're certainly not talking about every person who uses because every person who uses is not dependent in the way that an act like the one currently used in New South Wales is discussing. What we're talking about are people that have lost their capacity to understand the consequences of continuing to use that particular substance. So with the greatest respect to people like the New South Wales Users Association, these are not the people we're locking up. Who we're locking up tend to be... Um, a person who no longer has the capacity to understand that if they drink 30 to 40 standard drinks a day, they are at huge risk of bleeding, that they are forgetting to buy food, that they're unable to manage their finances. Buying them time to actually take up that substance dependency allows us to say, well, if you continue to make those decisions, now it's eccentricity and not a brain injury because of your substance use. And that's certainly not to remove people's right to be eccentric. So there's a big difference between a functional user, big difference between the Thomas De Quinceys, the Aldous Huxleys, the D.H. Lawrences, the Keith Richards, to the person who's so incapacitated by their drug and alcohol use that they can no longer meaningfully engage in the community around them. And they're the ones we want to give an opportunity to say, hey, you might not want to engage with us as a community because you don't like us, or it may well be that you've lacked the tools now because something's happened to your brain through your use that you're not even understanding yourself. Let's give your brain a bit of a rest, have a look at what's going on, and then see whether you still want to make those same decisions. That's the way I make peace with it. And uh, uh, one last question, <laughs> Yeah. Uh,
0: when you reach that point where you're, um, you've got f- brain damage, quote-unquote,
3: from your substance use, has the horse already bolted that we No, I think that if anything, the neuroscientific research lately has shown us that we grossly underestimated the brain's capacity to learn. And I think that if anything, one of the great things about the work people have done with brain-injured clients, from motor vehicle accidents, from having different sorts of things done for intractable epilepsy, for people who have worked with um, people who have catastrophic strokes, you can use tissue. Well, Yes, we might only be at a stage where we're using it in the most crude fashion and we're not quite yet at the stage where we're dilettantes and being able to say, no, on this particular day, we like to stimulate this particular part. But we're at least saying that the more we stimulate, the more the brain rises to the occasion and uses different parts of itself to compensate. And So that's what we're hoping to do. It's a very optimistic note to end on. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you very, very much, much Victoria. <laughs>
2: That was Dr. Fisher from Nepean Hospital's Drug and Alcohol Unit speaking there with Victoria Bond for this week's Diffusion. And that's it for us for Diffusion today. Contributing to the program were Ian Wolfe, Victoria Bond and myself, Philippe Perez. We recorded today's episode in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Be sure to join us next week for more sciencey stuff on Diffusion Science Radio here on the Community Radio Network. Goodbye for now.